0: welcome everyone to this evening's meeting of the Aristotelian Society. It's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker, Dorothea Dibus. Dorothea is a lecturer in philosophy at the University of York, and her main areas of research are in philosophy of mind and psychology. Um, In particular, she's published on memory, attention, imagination, and the emotions And more recently, she started work on a new research project which investigates our active involvement with our own mental lives. And that's going to be the topic that's addressed in today's talk, the title of which is Shaping Our Mental Lives on the Possibility of Mental Self-Regulation. Thanks, Dr. Okay. well, thanks, Matt, and thanks, everybody, for coming. I'm uh, very honoured and pleased to be here. So I'll be reading this because the recording um, would otherwise end up being a bit um, strange. But um, I've given you a very full handout, so you'll be able to follow what I have to say. So the topic at the heart of the present paper is our ability to shape our own mental lives. Indeed, also I'd like to suggest healthy, mature human beings are able to play an active part in how their own mental lives develop And thus, healthy, mature human beings are able to shape their own mental lives. This claim might seem surprising, at least at first sight. For when we think about our own ordinary, everyday mental lives and what they're like, it might seem that the events which occur in our mental lives just happen to us. We find ourselves with a thought or an emotion or a perceptual experience, and that's just how things go. That's just what happens in our mental life. What is more, in some cases, what happens in our mental lives seems inflicted upon us. For example, one might feel overwhelmed by a very strong emotion, and in those cases, it would seem that what is happening in our mental lives is quite explicitly beyond our control. Now, both these observations are accurate as far as they go, but in the face of such observations, it seems important to not lose sight of the fact that at other times, we also can be, and indeed frequently are, actively involved with respect to our own mental lives. Sometimes healthy, mature human beings can and do play an active role with respect to their own mental lives and with respect to how these mental lives (sighs) develop. For example, a little toy example. Think about Emma. Um, She comes home at night. She feels a little sad, so she puts on some music, which she knows will cheer her up. Um, What seems to be happening here is someone is somehow playing an active part with respect to how her own mental life develops further. Um, It seems that, as in this particular case, more generally, we can be, and often are, actively involved with respect to particular events or particular processes or particular states of affairs which occur or obtain in our own mental lives. But we also can be, and sometimes are, actively involved in shaping what we might call our mental dispositions, our mental habits, and our mental character traits, for example, intellectual virtues and vices. Lastly, arguably, we also can be, and sometimes are, actively involved in determining the coloring, or the tone, as Wittgenstein once called it, which our mental lives might have. But I think it's clear that the latter two abilities do in important ways depend on our ability to be actively involved with relevant particular events and particular processes and particular states of affairs uh, which do occur or obtain in our mental lives. And that's why I suggest that we here focus on a subject's active involvement with respect to particular events or processes or states of affairs which occur or obtain in their own mental lives. Often a subject's active involvement with respect to a particular event which occurs in her own mental life is goal-directed in a specific way. The subject has a view as to how she'd like the relevant aspect of her own mental life to develop, and her active involvement with respect to the relevant particular event which occurs in her own mental life aims to promote a development of her own mental life towards the relevant goal. So just to come back to our earlier example, when Emma feels a little sad and puts on some music which she knows will cheer up, she does this with the goal of feeling a little less sad and a bit more cheerful. So um, we might try to capture this goal-directedness by saying that in relevant cases, subjects regulate relevant aspects of their own mental lives. Thus, When I hear say that a subject regulates a certain aspect of her own mental life, I mean to say that the subject is actively involved with the relevant aspect of her own mental life in a goal-directed way. And we should note that, as I use the term here, subjects being actively involved with an aspect of her own mental life does not necessarily require an action on the part of the subject, In the present context, someone might also be said to be actively involved with a certain aspect of their own mental life if they could act on it in some way, but do not act in any way because the relevant aspect of their mental life does develop in the way they would like it to develop. We should also note that in cases in which a subject is said to regulate a certain aspect of her own mental life, the goal in question is a goal which concerns the relevant aspect of the subject's own mental life, For example, to go back to our example of Emma, when Emma puts on some cheerful music, her goal is to feel a little less sad and a bit more cheerful. So it's her own mental life um, that's at issue here. It seems plausible to hold that subjects sometimes can and successfully do regulate a wide range of different types of events, processes, and states of affairs which occur in their own mental lives. So amongst other things, um, we all sometimes can and successfully do regulate our emotions, our thoughts, our beliefs, our desires and intentions, our memories, our attention, our experiences of pleasure and pain, and our imaginings. So it's a wide range of mental um, phenomena that I think are... um, open to mental self-regulation. So just to get our intuitions um, uh, going on this, we, we might run through a couple of examples that I've listed on the handout here. So we've already talked about a case where someone is feeling a little sad and puts on some music which they know will cheer them up. Um, You might set out to think about a certain matter more carefully in order to form well-grounded beliefs on the matter. You might set out to dissolve and get rid of a desire to stay in and watch TV tonight by thinking about going for a swim, expecting that this in turn will produce a desire to go for a swim. You might set out to remember where you left your keys. Uh, You might repeatedly bring your attention back to what someone else is saying in the face of some persistent distraction. You might engage in breathing exercises in order to reduce the severity of a current pain experience. You might set out to imagine a scheduled job interview in a way which you deem to be conducive to doing well in the actual interview. So each of these cases, I'd like to suggest, are cases where you're actively involved with your own mental life. And given that these exemplary cases seem quite plausible, uh, we might have reason to accept what I call the mental self-regulation claim, which says that subjects sometimes can and do engage in mental self-regulation. That is, subjects sometimes can and do regulate aspects of their own mental lives. They sometimes can be and are actively involved with their own mental lives in a goal-directed way. So that's the the claim um, that's under consideration here. Um, To be just a tiny bit more precise, we might say that it's plausible to hold that subjects can and sometimes do regulate whether relevant mental events do or do not occur in their mental lives, either by bringing about that a relevant event does occur, or by letting a relevant event which occurs continue to occur, or else by bringing about that a relevant event which does occur. Uh, ceases to occur. And for those mental events which do occur in their mental lives, subjects sometimes also can and do regulate which properties these mental events do or do not have. So that, I hope, um, gives us a sense of the claim that's under consideration here. Now, why should we consider this claim in a philosophical context? what's philosophically important about the mental self-regulation claim. I think that this mental self-regulation claim should be of great interest to philosophers for at least two reasons. The first um, might be outlined as follows. In order to gain an understanding of the nature of the human mind, we do, amongst other things, need to understand how our mental lives develop across time and how various factors can and do influence that development. But then... If we are, as the mental self-regulation claim has it, able to shape our mental lives by means of mental self-regulation, this ability is bound to play an important part in determining how our mental lives develop. And it follows that an understanding of the phenomenon of mental self-regulation will be crucial for any attempt at gaining a full understanding of the nature of the human mind. So that, I think, is one good reason to uh, consider the phenomenon of mental self-regulation in a philosophical context. Secondly, what's more, if we're able to shape our mental lives by means of mental self-regulation, we might be able to shape our mental lives for the better or for the worse. Our ability to shape our mental lives by means of mental self-regulation should therefore also have axiological implications which deserve closer attention the mental self-regulation gives us good reason to explore issues in what we might call the ethics of mental life. And assuming that this is an interesting research area, um, we have reason to think about our ability to engage in mental self-regulation. So I think these are two good reasons to explore the mental self-regulation claim further. Um, And in order to do so, I take it that the claim itself isn't particularly contentious, but that it needs developing and explicating, and that's what I try to um, do here. Um, And doing that, I try to address what I call the main question, which says that given that mental self-regulation is possible, how is it possible? That is, what are the enabling conditions which make it possible, and how can the phenomenon of mental self-regulation be located within the wider context of our everyday lives and the world we live in? So that's the question, and I hope that in addressing this question, we'll come to better understand this phenomenon, the phenomenon of mental self-regulation, which has mostly been ignored by contemporary philosophers of mind, but which should, as we've just seen, be of central importance in any attempt at understanding the nature of our minds fully. So then, um, let's just start out with trying to think a bit about what the enabling conditions of mental self-regulation might be. Quite generally, it seems plausible to accept that in order for a subject to regulate something, it's necessary that the subject be able to guide in a goal-directed way how the object of a regulatory activity develops. For example, in order for a policewoman who stands in the middle of a busy crossroads to regulate the flow of the traffic, it's necessary that the policewoman be able to guide the flow of the traffic on the crossroads by waving some cars through and stopping others, and that she be able to do so in a way that promotes her goal of making the traffic flow smoothly. Accordingly, it also seems plausible to hold that Um, what I call the guidance condition, in order for a subject to regulate a certain aspect of her own mental life, it's necessary that the subject be able to guide how the relevant aspect of her own mental life develops and that she be able to do so in a goal-directed way. So that's the guidance condition. Then thinking about this guidance condition further, it seems that in order for a subject to be able to guide the development of a certain process in a goal-directed way, it does in turn seem necessary that the subject be able to intervene in the relevant process in a goal-directed way. For example, in order for the policewoman to be able to guide the flow of the traffic with the goal of making the traffic flow smoothly, it's necessary that the policewoman be able to intervene in the flow of the traffic by waving some cars through and by stopping others in a way that is conducive to reaching her goal of making the traffic flow smoothly. More generally, one might then also suggest that in order for a subject to guide in a goal-directed way how a certain aspect of her mental life develops, it is, amongst other things, necessary that the subject be able to intervene in a goal-directed way in the unfolding of the relevant aspect of her own mental life. Together with the guidance condition, entails the intervention condition, which says that in order for a subject to regulate a certain aspect of her own mental life, it's necessary that the subject be able to intervene in a goal directed way in the unfolding of the relevant aspect of her own mental life. Next, we should ask what exactly we're talking about when we're talking about an intervention here. At its most basic, It seems that when we say that a subject intervenes upon a certain event, we mean to say that the subject acts in a way which is effective, that is, in a way which brings about a change in the targeted event, a change which wouldn't have occurred otherwise. So we have reason to accept that In order for someone to intervene upon a certain event, it's necessary that the subject act with respect to the relevant event and that she act in a way which is effective, that is, in a way which does bring about a change in the targeted event, a change which would not have occurred otherwise. This seems true for cases of intervention quite generally, and it should therefore also be true for cases in which a subject intervenes in the unfolding of an aspect of her own mental life more specifically. So, um, taking this together with the intervention condition, we get what I call the effective agency condition, which says that in order for a subject to regulate a certain aspect of her own mental life, it is necessary that the subject be able to act with respect to relevant mental event, and that she be able to act in a way which is effective, that is, in a way which brings about a change in the targeted event, a change which wouldn't have occurred otherwise. So, Now, we've kind of uh, worked our way through three conditions which I suggest need to be met in order for someone to be actively involved in their own mental life in a goal-directed way. The guidance condition, the intervention condition, and the effective agency condition. Um, Next, I suggest that we think a bit more about the actions which subjects engage in when they intervene in the unfolding of their own mental lives. And in order to do that, I suggest that we compare cases in which subjects intervene on aspects of their own mental life, on the one hand, with simple paradigmatic cases of everyday interventions upon purely physical processes in the physical world, on the other. So, we've already played with some examples of cases where someone uh, intervenes on their mental life, Here are some examples of simple paradigmatic cases of everyday interventions upon purely physical processes in the physical world. Catching a ball that would otherwise smash a window, joining in with a group of people who are moving chairs around a room, pushing the pedals of one's bike harder in order to go faster. Each of those, I'd suggest, are simple cases of everyday interventions on purely physical processes in the physical world. Thinking about the actions which subjects engage in when they intervene on purely physical processes in the physical world in these everyday contexts a bit further, it seems plausible to say that these actions are always physical actions. By contrast, it seems that the actions which subjects engage in when they intervene upon an aspect of their own mental life are sometimes physical actions but at other times relevant actions might plausibly be described as mental actions. For example, asking yourself where you left the keys One might arguably describe this as a mental action, although I don't want to get involved in any specific discussion of that. Still, there seems to be a difference here between interventions on purely physical processes and interventions on one's own mental life in cases like the one where you're asking yourself where you left your key. Okay. Second difference between interventions on physical processes and interventions on one's own mental life um, might be sketched as follows. All actions which subjects engage in when they intervene on purely physical processes in the physical world in everyday contexts bring about a change in the relevant process in virtue of a causal relation which obtains between the intervening subject's action and the relevant change. By contrast, while the actions which subjects engage in when they intervene upon an aspect of their own mental life sometimes Bring about a change in the relevant aspect of the subject's own mental life in virtue of a causal relation which obtains between the intervening subject's action and the relevant ch- change. At other times, the relation which obtains between the intervening subject's action and the relevant change is a reason giving relation. For example, when you ask yourself to add 44 and 35, that gives you reason to think 79. So these might be two interesting differences between interventions on purely physical processes on the one hand and interventions on one's own mental life on the other. But the most important difference is a third one. Um, So trying to introduce that third and, as I think, most different and most telling difference between interventions on physical processes and interventions on mental processes, we might make the following observation. The actions which subjects engage in when they intervene upon everyday purely physical processes are, in simple paradigmatic cases, usually both direct and precise. That is, relevant actions directly engage with the very physical process upon which the subject wants to intervene and the subject can control the outcome of their action in a precise manner. By contrast, the actions which subjects engage in when they intervene upon aspects of their own mental lives when engaged in mental self-regulation are in simple paradigmatic cases and indeed in the great majority of cases either indirect or imprecise or both, but they're usually not both direct and precise. So that's the suggestion. Now, obviously, much more needs to be done in order to spell the suggestion out. So what we should do first is to get clear about the terminology and say something about what I mean here when I talk about an intervention being direct or indirect um, and precise or imprecise. So let's start uh, with thinking about what it takes for an intervention to be direct or indirect. When a subject intervenes upon a particular event, to say that the relevant action on the part of the subject is direct is to say that the subject acts upon the very event itself which she wants to intervene upon. To say that the subject's action is indirect is to say that the subject does not act upon the very event itself which she wants to intervene upon, but that she instead acts on another event, which in turn has an effect on that event, which ultimately is the target of the intervention. So that's a stipulation of how the terms direct and indirect will be used here. Um, Secondly, let's think about precise and imprecise. I'd like to suggest the following. When a subject intervenes upon a particular event, to say that the subject's relevant action is precise is to say that the subject can predict and can control the changes brought about by action in a suitably precise manner. To say that the subject's action is imprecise is to say that the subject cannot predict and cannot control the changes brought about by action in a suitably precise manner. So that's... uh, the um, pair precise and imprecise. And and I take those to be terminological stipulations. And so with those terminological stipulations in place, we should give some further consideration to the earlier claim that, in contrast with simple paradigmatic cases of interventions upon everyday purely physical processes, the actions which subjects engage in when they intervene upon aspects of their own mental lives in cases of mental self-regulation, are, in simple, paradigmatic cases, and indeed in the great majority of cases, either indirect or imprecise or both, but they're usually not both direct and precise. So that claim, um, the not both direct and precise claim, as I call it here, needs some further support. So let's start out um, by thinking about some everyday cases. Um, Some examples, Uh, we've thought about one already, putting on music to cheer oneself up. That seems indirect. You're acting on the machine, hoping that um, whatever the machine does once you switch it on will have an impact on your mental life. Asking yourself where you've put your keys, hoping that the question will bring up a memory. That seems imprecise. You're asking yourself the question. You don't quite know what's going to happen next. You hope that um, something is going to happen that will give you the answer, um, but you haven't got much control over what's going to happen next. Um, Engaging in breathing exercises to reduce a pain experience. This seems, at least in most cases, indirect. The breathing is independent of the pain experience, but you figure that if you breathe in a certain way, that might have an impact on the pain experience. Setting out to think more carefully about a particular matter. That, again, seems imprecise. So when you're sitting down to think about, I don't know, what you think about the death penalty or something. Um, you sit yourself down to think about it precisely because you don't quite know yet what you think about the matter, so whatever is going to happen in this process of thinking, um, you can't quite predict and control, but you're going through the in order to come up with a view. Um, thinking about the option of going for a swim so as to dissipate a desire to watch TV, again, that seems to be indirect. You're making yourself think about something in order to have... A, an impact on a desire, their thoughts are independent of the desire, but you want to have an effect, Uh, you want to have the desire change in some way, so you're engaging in some indirect um, means of changing the desire. So more generally then it seems that in very many cases in which the subject intervenes upon an aspect of her own mental life when engaged in mental self-regulation, the action which the subject engages in is indirect, that is The action which the subject engages in is not directed at that element of her own mental life which she ultimately wants to intervene upon, and the action often isn't even directed at any element of her own mental life at all, but is rather directed at a feature of the situation other than the relevant element on which she would like to intervene. The feature at which the subject's action is directed is such that if the subject does act upon this feature in the appropriate way, The resulting changes will in turn bring about relevant changes in that element of the subject's mental life which she ultimately does want to intervene upon and the subject understands this. In many other cases in which the subject intervenes upon an aspect of her own mental life when engaged in mental self-regulation, the action which the subject engages in is imprecise. While the action which the subject engages in might well be direct, that is, the action might be directed at the very element of the subject's own mental life which she wants to intervene upon, the subject cannot predict and cannot control the outcome of her action in a suitably precise manner. Indeed, in many cases in which a subject does set out to engage directly with the very element of her mental life which she wants to intervene upon, the subject tries to prompt relevant changes in her own mental life, for example, setting out to remember something, setting out to imagine something, or setting out to think something through. Such mental self-prompting usually sets off some subpersonal psychological process that might eventually lead to personal level changes in the subject's own mental life, which are of the kind the subject was hoping for. But the workings of the relevant subpersonal personal process, um, that is the mechanisms involved, are usually opaque to the subject and what the precise outcome of a relevant prompting might possibly be usually is not only beyond the subject's control, but is also unknown to the subject at the time at which she engages in the prompting action. The subject's action itself, therefore, is a bit of a stab in the dark and is rather imprecise with respect to determining its outcome. All this then is to try to uh, bring you around to Um, see that and why it might be plausible to accept this claim that I've called the not both direct and precise claim, namely the claim that the actions which subjects engage in when they intervene upon aspects of their own mental lives in cases of mental self-regulation are, in simple, paradigmatic cases, and indeed in the great majority of cases, either indirect or imprecise or both, but they are usually not both direct and precise. Now, okay, so this is philosophy, so I assume you've already come up with some counterexamples to this claim. Um, and that's okay. As you see when you look at the claim again, the claim only talks about um, paradigmatic cases, the majority of cases, uh, simple cases. So the claim as it is phrased here gives me some leeway to accommodate some counterexamples that you might already have come up with. Um, we can talk about the ones you still want to talk about in discussion. What I'd like to Talk about here is one big class of counterexamples. So, I think perceptual experiences, at least very many perceptual experiences, uh, do present a counterexample to the not both direct and precise claim. Um, and I'd like to talk you through that and um, give us reason to nevertheless continue to endorse this not both direct and precise claim. So, when you're thinking about actions which subjects engage in when they intervene upon their own perceptual experiences, in cases of mental self-regulation, you find that um, relevant actions often are both direct and precise. So, think about a list of actions that you might engage in, in order to intervene on your own perceptual experience. You might close your eyes in the face of a gruesome scene on screen. You might move your hand over the silky fabric to feel the smoothness of the surface, or you might come to hold your nose while walking across a field which has just been fertilised. And it's plausible to think that each of these exemplary actions are ex- actions where the subject intervenes upon her own perceptual experience um, in a direct and precise manner. So that seems to be, um, a that seem to be three counterexamples to the not both direct and precise claim. For example, when a subject moves her hand to hold her nose to stop her olfactory experience of the freshly fertilised field, she knows exactly what's going to happen once her fingers have reached her nose her olfactory experience of her environment will cease more or less completely, and this is exactly the change which she aims to bring about. So the relevant action should count as precise. It also seems plausible to accept that the delivery of sensory information via subject's sense organs is a constitutive part of relevant perceptual experiences, so that a subject's action which is directed towards those aspects of one of her sense organs which make the delivery of relevant sensory information possible should be understood as an action upon a constitutive element of the very perceptual experience itself. And this in turn means that the subject's action of holding her nose should also count as direct. So we find that the actions which subjects engage in when they intervene upon their own perceptual experiences in cases of mental self-regulation present us with an important exception to the not both direct and precise claim. These actions often are both direct and precise. So at first sight you might think, hmm, that's bad. It seems not so bad, actually. In turn, it shouldn't be that surprising, really. For perceptual experiences are those elements of our mental lives in which our mental lives are most closely and most directly enmeshed with the physical world around us. Indeed, one might plausibly hold that perceptual experiences are partly constituted by the physical world around us. But then, if a subject's perceptual experience is partly constituted by the physical world around her, then in an attempt to intervene upon her own perceptual experiences, the subject can simply intervene upon one of those constitutive parts of the experience which can be found in the physical world around her, which in turn means that we should expect that the actions which subjects engage in when they intervene upon their own perceptual experiences in cases of mental self-regulation often are both direct and precise. And it seems that when trying to name a paradigm case of a mental event, philosophers of mind frequently think of perceptual experiences. But as we've just seen, with respect to mental self-regulation, cases in which subjects regulate their own perceptual experiences are clearly exceptional cases, and they should most definitely not count as paradigmatic cases of mental self-regulation more generally. Quite on the contrary, for the great majority of cases of mental self-regulation, such as the self-regulation of emotions, thoughts, beliefs, desires, intentions, memories, experiences of pleasure and pain, and imaginings, relevant actions are usually not both direct and precise. So I'd like to suggest that in this particular context, perceptual experiences actually are the exceptional case, and that we should continue to hold that um, the not both direct and precise claim is true, Um, namely that the actions which subjects engage in when they intervene upon aspects of their own mental lives in cases of mental self-regulation are, in simple and paradigmatic cases, and the great majority of cases, either indirect or imprecise or both, but they're usually not both direct and precise. So, many philosophers hold that our own mental lives are what we are most intimately acquainted with, and what we are aware of in some direct way while our awareness of the physical world around us is in an important way indirect. Um, But we now find that as far as our abilities to intervene in the relevant domains are concerned, things are structured in exactly the opposite way while in simple paradigmatic cases we can and do intervene upon events in the physical world by acting upon them in both direct and precise ways, the great majority of our interventions on our own mental lives are not both direct and precise, but are rather indirect or imprecise or both. So if we get what I call the elusive domain claim, which says that our very own mental lives are a comparatively elusive domain in the face of our attempts at regulatory intervention when contrasted with the physical world. Furthermore, compared to interventions which are direct, interventions which are indirect entail more steps on the way towards the goal which the subject aims to reach. The more steps there are, the greater the chances are for things to go wrong and for the relevant attempt to fail. And accordingly, interventions which are indirect are more prone to failure than interventions which are direct. Similarly, compared to interventions which are precise, interventions which are imprecise entail much less control on the part of the intervening subject over the events that are prompted by the subject's intervening action, which in turn leaves more room for the subject's attempt at reaching the relevant goal to fail, and accordingly, interventions which are imprecise are more prone to failure than interventions which are precise. we've got reason to hold that interventions which are indirect or imprecise or both are more prone to failure than interventions which are both direct and precise. But then, while in simple paradigmatic cases, um, we can and do regulate events in the physical world by acting upon them in both direct and precise ways, the great majority of our interventions on our own mental lives are not both direct and precise, but are rather indirect or imprecise or both. Um, That, in turn, gives us what I call the fragile ability claim, which says that while our ability to regulate purely physical processes in our everyday environments is rather robust, our ability to regulate our own mental lives is comparatively fragile. Now, next, someone might try to uh, push this all a bit by asking about interventions on physical processes. So far, um, I've said that Um, interventions on physical processes are normally direct and precise, but now someone could say, well, look, aren't there cases in which our interventions on purely physical processes are also indirect or imprecise or both? And if so, why should we accept that our ability to regulate our own mental lives differs from our ability to regulate purely physical processes in any important ways, as the elusive domain claim and the fragile ability claim suggest? So... The interlocutor might offer some exemplary cases in which interventions on purely physical processes could be described as either indirect or imprecise, or both as follows. They might say, look, moving the levers of a digger to bring it about that a hole is stuck so that a house can be built, that's indirect. Baking bread, they might say, that's imprecise. Oiling parts of a sewing machine in order for one's sewing to go more smoothly, that, they might say, is indirect. Making high-energy particle beams collide, for example, at CERN, that, they say, is imprecise. So there are interventions on the fiscal world uh, that seem quite plausibly described as indirect or imprecise, or maybe both, and we might grant uh, the interlocutor this much. But it seems that those cases, the ones that the interlocutor has described, and probably the ones that they have in mind otherwise, are really rather complex interventions on the physical world. And the fact that such complex interventions on the physical world might sometimes be plausibly described as either indirect or imprecise or both seems compatible with our earlier claim that in simple paradigmatic cases, we can and do regulate events in the physical world by acting upon them in both direct and precise ways. By contrast, simple paradigmatic cases of interventions on one's own mental life in cases of mental self-regulation are usually, as we've seen, either imprecise or indirect or both, but not both direct and precise. So, as we said earlier, in the vast majority of cases in which subjects regulate their own mental lives, relevant interventions are either indirect or imprecise, but not both direct and precise. So, even though there certainly are cases in which subjects' interventions on purely physical processes might be described as either indirect or imprecise, we nevertheless do have good reason, it seems, to continue to hold that um, the elusive domain claim and the fragile ability claim are both true, uh, so that our very own mental lives are a comparatively elusive domain in the face of our attempts at regulatory intervention when contrasted with the fiscal world, and that while our ability to regulate purely physical processes in our everyday environments is rather robust, our ability to regulate our own mental lives is comparatively fragile. So this brings us... Um, to an end of a discussion of things that came up when discussing the effective agency condition. So remember, we started out by developing various conditions that need to be met in order for someone to be able to engage in mental self-regulation. We uh, had the guidance condition, the intervention condition, and the effective agency condition. And what what we've done during the last section of this paper now was to say more on um, the implications of the effective agency condition. Next, I'd like to discuss a fourth condition that I think needs to be met in order for someone to be able to engage in mental self-regulation, and that's a condition that I call the understanding condition. So what I'd like us to think about uh, in this last part of the paper is the question, which role a subject's own understanding of a situation plays for her ability to regulate her own mental life? So quite generally, it seems plausible to hold that in order for a subject to be able to intervene in the unfolding of a certain process in a goal-directed way, it's necessary that the subject understand what some of the many different factors which jointly determine the unfolding of the relevant process are, how these factors contribute to the unfolding of the relevant process, and how she herself might interact with those factors in such a way as to make an intervention on the relevant process successful in reaching her regulatory goal. For example, in order for a policewoman to be able to intervene in the flow of the traffic with the goal of making the traffic flow smoothly across the crossroads, it's necessary that the policewoman understand what some of the many different factors which jointly determine the flow of the traffic are. For example, where the points of entry to the crossroads are, how these factors contribute to the flow of the traffic. For example, that if too many cars enter the crossroads from any one particular point of entry, the traffic will come to a standstill and how she herself might interact with those factors in such a way as to make an intervention on the flow of the traffic successful in reaching her regulatory goal of making the traffic flow smoothly, for example, by waving some cars through and stopping others. More specifically, one might then also suggest that in order for a subject to be able to intervene in the unfolding of a certain aspect of her own mental life in a goal-directed way, it's necessary that the subject understand what some of the many different factors which jointly determine the unfolding of the relevant aspect of her own mental life are, how these factors contribute to the unfolding of the relevant aspect of her own mental life, and how she herself might interact with those factors in such a way as to make an intervention on the relevant aspect of her own mental life successful in reaching her regulatory goal. This, together with the intervention condition, gives us what I call the understanding condition And the understanding condition says that in order for a subject to regulate an aspect of her mental life, it's necessary that the subject understand what some of the many different factors which jointly determine the unfolding of the relevant aspect of her own mental life are, how these factors contribute to the unfolding of the relevant aspect of her own mental life, and how she herself might interact with those factors in such a way as to make an intervention on the relevant aspect of her own mental life successful in reaching her regulatory goal. So that's the condition I'd like us to consider. Now, firstly, we might want to think a bit more about how subjects who engage in mental self-regulation might satisfy this understanding condition. And it seems that the ways in which subjects who engage in mental self-regulation can satisfy this condition might vary along various different dimensions. So firstly, you might find that in some cases... Um, the subject's understanding of relevant features of their situation is quite rudimentary, whereas at other times uh, the subject's understanding can be quite sophisticated. So when someone puts on some music, in order to cheer themselves up, then it seems that the subject's attempt at mental self-regulation requires a rather sophisticated understanding of the link between relevant emotional states and different types of music, might also be person-specific, the subject might understand that this is the kind of music that will cheer herself up, but others might detest this kind of music, so they wouldn't be cheered up by it, so that seems to be quite a sophisticated kind of understanding that's... that's, uh, presupposed here. By contrast, in other cases, a subject's understanding of the situation might be more rudimentary. When you try to remember where you left your keys, you might not quite understand um, the mechanisms by which you might hopefully retrieve the answer, but nevertheless, um, we do engage in this kind of activity a lot. So, it seems that here, the subject's understanding is somewhat less sophisticated, but nevertheless, there's some understanding there. Another more important difference that I'd like to um, talk a bit more here about is a difference between theoretical understanding and practical understanding. So that's a second dimension along which the ways in which subjects satisfy the understanding condition can vary, and I think that's a more important dimension that we should Uh, spend some more time on here. So when subjects engage in mental self-regulation, their understanding of relevant features of their situation is sometimes theoretical, but very often subjects' understanding of relevant features of their situation, it seems, is of a practical kind. So you can conceive of cases in which a subject employs a theoretical understanding of the situation in an attempt to regulate her own mental life. Uh, but these cases arguably are quite rare. Um, so think of Bob, who has heard from a friend that breathing exercises of a certain kind are really good for uh, regulating severe pain. Um, so Bob now has this little theory about the kinds of breathing exercises that one needs to engage in in order to regulate severe pain. But Bob hasn't been in any uh, pain for quite a while. Now suddenly he does find himself with a severe pain experience and now he puts this theoretical Um, understanding of the situation to good use. So he applies the theoretical understanding which his friend has provided him with, Um, he engages in the relevant breathing exercises and soon his pain experience is less severe. So here it seems that uh, the subjects um, attempt at mental self-regulation is based on a theoretical understanding of the situation. But it seems that in the vast majority of cases of mental self-regulation, people don't have any such theoretical understanding of their situation. Rather, it seems that in most cases in which people engage in mental self-regulation, they have some practical understanding, and having some such practical understanding of their situation is, I'd like to suggest, sufficient for them to be able to uh, engage in mental self-regulation. Now... That in turn obviously um, poses the question what exactly it takes to have practical understanding of a relevant situation, and the suggestion I'd like to explore in the remainder of this paper is the suggestion that in order for someone to have a practical understanding of a relevant situation, it's sufficient that the subject have relevant know-how, which in turn entails a practical understanding of the situation. So let's think a bit more about practical understanding, know-how, and skills as far as mental self-regulation is concerned. Um, It seems quite plausible to accept um, a claim I call the mental know-how claim, which says that all healthy human beings beyond the age of early childhood do have some mental self-regulatory know-how, that is, they have some knowledge of how to regulate their own mental lives. Um, so, that's the claim I'd like us to consider. What exactly does it mean to say that we all have some mental self-regulatory know-how? Um, we might try to get a bit of a sense for what this might mean by comparing mental self-regulatory know-how with other cases of know-how. So, um, the stereotypical example of someone who knows how to ride a bike, they do, for example, know how to accelerate on a bike. Um, here is Phil, he knows how to sail a dinghy, so, for example, he knows how to sail in a circle. And analogously, you might think of Emma who knows how to regulate her own mental life. For example, she knows how to bring it about that she imagines next week's job interview in detail and in a way that is conducive to her doing well in the interview. So I'd like to suggest that we can think about cases of mental self-regulatory know-how in analogy to cases of um, a more uh, physically oriented know-how. It seems that recent discussions of know-how have focused on cases of know-how concerning processes which are predominantly physical, such as riding a bike or sailing a dinghy, but I suggest suggest that discussions might be enriched by some more careful consideration of cases of know-how concerning processes which are predominantly mental, such as regulating one's imagination of a future event. If you look at the literature on know-how, you'll find two prominent recent accounts. Some follow Stanley and Williamson, and they say that know-how is ultimately a form of propositional knowledge. Others follow Ryle, and they say that know-how is knowledge of its own kind, not a mere automatism, but not propositional knowledge either. Know-how is sui generis, they will say. Um, Luckily, we don't have to take sides in this debate, because it seems that defenders of both views um, agree that... Um, Know-how entails practical understanding, that is that a subject's know-how with respect to a certain domain entails a practical understanding of relevant situations. A subject's domain-specific know-how entails a practical understanding of what some of the many different factors which jointly determine the unfolding of various domain-specific processes are, how these factors contribute to the unfolding of relevant domain-specific processes, and how the subject herself might interact with those factors in such a way as to make interventions on the relevant processes successful in reaching particular goals. So the suggestion is that if Anna knows how to ride a bike, this know-how entails a practical understanding of what some of the many different factors which jointly determine her moving along on the bike are, how these factors contribute to the unfolding of the process of moving along on the bike, and how she herself might interact with those factors in such a way as to make an intervention on her moving along on the bike successful in reaching particular goals. But then what exactly does it mean to say that someone has practical understanding? So the example of Anna seems to illustrate the claim, but what exactly does it mean to say that she has practical understanding um, of of her situation on the bike? Now. It seems plausible to hold that to say that a subject has practical understanding rather than theoretical understanding implies that the relevant understanding relies relies on various dispositions and abilities which it might not be possible to spell out in anything but demonstrative terms. For example, this is how one should cycle down a steep, muddy, single track on a mountain bike. In addition, someone who holds that know-how is so generous knowledge might also say that practical understanding is a kind of non-propositional understanding. Now, But in any case, everybody will be able to agree uh, on the view that um, practical understanding might be based on dispositions and abilities, which it might not be possible to spell out in anything but demonstrative terms, but can be spelled out demonstratively. Um, And then we can try to apply this to our earlier suggestion about mental know-how, it seems that a subject's mental self-regulatory know-how entails a practical understanding of relevant situations. That is, the subjects having some mental self-regulatory know-how entails the subjects having a practical understanding of what some of the many different factors which jointly determine the unfolding of relevant aspects of our mental life are how these factors contribute to the unfolding of the relevant aspects of her own mental life, and how she herself might interact with those factors in such a way as to make an intervention on in relevant aspects of her own mental life successful in reaching her regulatory goals. So if Emma knows how to regulate her emotions, this know-how entails a practical understanding of what some of the many different factors which jointly determine how emotional experiences are, for example, the impact of different kinds of music on her emotional states, How these factors contribute to the unfolding of emotional experiences, for example, cheerful music might alleviate a feeling of sadness, and how these factors might be manipulated in such a way as to make interventions on the unfolding of the relevant emotional experience successful in reaching a particular goal. For example, putting on some cheerful music might help in reaching the goal of making a feeling of sadness disappear. So that I hope kind of illustrates. They claim that mental know-how entails practical understanding. Um, And the the suggestion is that we have some kind of skill of mental self-regulation. So just as the skill of riding a bike can be more or less well-developed, so it seems plausible to think that the skill of mental self-regulation can also be more or less well-developed. Um, It seems plausible to hold that there are intrapersonal differences as well as interpersonal differences with respect to the skill. A subject might learn, they might gain more mental self-regulatory know-how over time, and thus come to know how to regulate their own mental lives better, and some people have greater mental self-regulatory know-how than others. Um, It seems plausible to explain these differences as differences in sensitivity, That is, we might hold that with respect to the case of mental self-regulation, just as with other cases of skill, and that's a quote from Ellen Friedland, the elements which constitute the skill as they become more and more refined, become more and more sensitive to context. End of quote. As with other skills, it seems plausible to assume that subjects can cultivate and further develop their skills of mental self-regulation. And more generally, we find then that we have reason to hold that our active involvement with our own mental lives often does depend on our having skills of mental self-regulation. So that, I think, is all I want to say. So let's just quickly summarize and conclude. As we said at the outset, the claim that we can shape our own mental lives and that healthy, mature human beings are able to play an active part in how their own mental lives develop might at first sight seem surprising. However, as we've meanwhile seen, we all do have uh, the ability to shape our own mental lives. More specifically, subjects can and often do engage in mental self regulation. That is, they can be and often are actively involved with their own mental lives in a goal directed way. In an attempt to understand disability better, we've addressed the question as to how mental self regulation is possible, and uh, we've determined some enabling conditions of mental self regulation. And we found that in order for a subject to be able to engage in mental self regulation, the guidance condition, the intervention condition, and the effective agency condition, as well as the understanding condition, all need to be met. So, just to summarise, we found that in order for a subject to regulate a certain aspect of her own mental life, it's necessary that the subject be able to guide how the relevant aspect of her own mental life develops, and that she be able to do so in a goal-directed way. It's necessary that the subject be able to intervene in a goal-directed way in the unfolding of the relevant aspect of her own mental life. It's necessary that the subject be able to act with respect to the relevant mental event, and that she'd be able to act in a way which is effective, that is, in a way which brings about a change in the targeted event, which wouldn't have occurred otherwise. And lastly, it's necessary, in order for a subject to regulate the certain aspect of her own mental life, it's necessary that the subject understand what some of the many different factors which jointly determine the unfolding of the relevant aspect of her own mental life are, how these factors contribute to the unfolding of the relevant aspect of her own mental life, and how she herself might interact with those factors in such a way as to make an intervention on the relevant aspect of her own mental life successful in reaching her regulatory goal. These conditions in turn should contribute to a better understanding of the phenomenon of mental self-regulation. What is more, in discussing the effective agency condition, we found that there are some important differences between our ability to intervene on aspects of our own mental lives on the one hand and our ability to intervene upon purely physical processes and the physical world on the other. Most importantly, we found that while the actions which subjects engage in when they intervene upon everyday purely physical processes are, in simple paradigmatic cases, usually both direct and precise, the actions which subjects engage in when they intervene upon aspects of their own mental lives in cases of mental self-regulation are, in simple paradigmatic cases, um, either indirect or imprecise or both, but they're usually not both direct and precise. That in turn does, as we saw, give us reason to hold that our very own mental lives are a comparatively elusive domain in the face of our attempts at regulatory intervention when contrasted with the physical world. And while our ability to regulate purely physical processes in our everyday environments is rather robust, our ability to regulate our own mental lives is comparatively fragile. In considering the understanding condition, in turn we saw that the ways in which subjects satisfy the understanding condition in relevant situations can and do vary along various dimensions. Importantly, while a subject's understanding in relevant situations might sometimes be theoretical, in many cases a subject's understanding of relevant features of a situation is of a practical kind. Indeed, all healthy human beings beyond the age of early childhood do, as we said, have some mental self-regulatory know-how, which provides them with the relevant practical understanding. And that observation, in turn, is of interest in at least two respects. Firstly, it indicates that the activities subjects engage in in cases of mental self-regulation often will be skillful activities, which should help us to understand the phenomenon of mental self-regulation better. But second... It should also give us reason to explore the new and, I think, interesting and provocative suggestion that we all do have some mental know-how, that is, that we all do have some skills related to our own mental lives in greater detail in future. So, unsurprisingly, in contemporary philosophy of mind, our ability to shape our own mental lives by means of mental self-regulation has been mostly ignored. I hope that the present paper has shown that the phenomenon does deserve our careful attention and that an understanding of the phenomenon of mental self-regulation should be crucial for any attempt at gaining a full understanding of the nature of the human mind. What is more, as we said earlier, if we are able to shape our mental lives by means of mental self-regulation, we might also be able to shape our mental lives for the better or for the worse. Our ability to shape our own mental lives by means of mental self-regulation should therefore also have axiological implications which do deserve closer attention. Indeed, the observation that we are able to engage in mental self-regulation gives us very good reason to explore issues in an area of research which we might call the ethics of mental life, an area of research which I think should provide great opportunities for innovative and worthwhile philosophical work in the future. Thanks very much for your time.